You might have heard it said that autistic people struggle with social cues and conversation. But what if they aren't the ones who need to adapt? It's the rest of us. In an attempt to reverse the conversation around autism and social interaction, one neurodivergent person jokingly coined the phrase neurotypical syndrome, describing its sufferers as following impossible social rituals, finding it difficult to communicate directly and lying far more than autistic people. Welcome to the Eye Podcast. I'm Molly Blackhall, and this week we're joined by Eye's money and business editor, Jesse Hewitson, who has written a book on raising an autistic child in a world designed for neurotypical people. Jesse, firstly, hello, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Tell us about why this is important to you. It's important to me because I've got an autistic son. And I see the daily struggles he has navigating a world that was built for non-autistic people. But then also I have written a book and in doing so I interviewed autistic adults and hearing their views for the first time made me feel really engaged with the way autism is represented Mm. and misunderstood. Mm. Well, I guess to get into this firstly, can you give us an overview of what autism is? I realise this is a big question and that it manifests very differently in different people, but can you give a sense of the key characteristics? Yeah, so I would say it's your brain sort of processes information in a different way than if you're non-autistic. So autistic people commonly have a different sensory experience. So if an autistic person goes into a supermarket, they may find it very sort of chaotic. They may struggle to filter out background noises and it may be very anxiety provoking in a way that if you're not autistic, you might think, oh, this is just a bit busy. And also, I think you've got different social preferences, potentially. It may be that you don't really feel the need to have conversations face-to-face with people. You may find making eye contact just not necessary. You don't really see the point in it. And also, this is a stereotype sometimes, but one that is often true, that you may sort of approach the world from a bit of a logical starting point. So lots of things feel illogical and don't properly make sense. So broadly, I would say it's a difference in the way your brain processes information. Would you mind telling us a bit about your experience raising an autistic child and when you first realised your son was autistic? My son was born and immediately seemed different to the other babies around the same age. He never really seemed happy and I felt instinctively he was stressed, really. And I remember someone said do you find it difficult to engage him? And that was a real light bulb moment because I couldn't put it into words. And I realised, yes, that's exactly what I find difficult. You know, we went through the process of him being assessed. It took about a year. We finally got the diagnosis. I remember the developmental paediatrician was kind, but his colleague, not so much. She described my son as not really being interested in her as a human being, more as someone who could access toys for him. You know, that's not something you want to hear as a parent. And and also now I realise it just isn't true. He cares deeply about people as human beings. So it was a very sort of unhelpful, Mm. I guess, description of, of my son at that point. So 
by two, we knew for sure he was autistic. He was having significant problems at nursery and mainstream primary school wasn't easy for him. He was socially isolated. He found it hard to concentrate. I think the noises were just too chaotic. So he needed significant amount of support. And at this point, I just absolutely hated autism. We associated autism with leading an unhappy life. If I could have been guaranteed a cure, I know I would have sold my flat and given every single penny I had to cure him of autism. Through my day job, I was interviewing the autistic gardener. He was a TV presenter on the Channel 4 programme. And I bowled up to him and said, oh, I'm about to write a book, thinking he was going to be grateful. And he was like so dismissive of it. He was like not another non-autistic parent writing Mm. a book about autism. He was like, that is the last thing we need. And I was really like stunned. And actually, I went away and started thinking about it and then realized I actually need to speak to some autistic people for this book. And so I started tweeting people and saying, can we chat on the phone? And then we just had these absolutely amazing conversations, which kind of blew my mind. And it suddenly made me realize being autistic isn't the problem. What is the problem is growing up autistic in a world that misunderstands you and is not built for autistic people in environments that are often really hostile to you and and leave you anxious. What are those differences? When you talk about society being set up for neurotypical people rather than neurodivergent people like autistic people, what do you mean? Schools, if we start at the beginning, are really not great places to be if you're autistic. So firstly, you've got a class with 31 kids making an absolute racket, particularly in reception. I mean, that's just hell, really. If you hear noises in a more intense way, on the whole, there's quite an emphasis on child-led play. Whereas if you're autistic, you want structure. Structure is so crucial to autistic children and adults. I think it's almost like oxygen, really. So the autistic person wants to know, okay, this is what we're doing now. This is how you do it. And this is what we're going to do in 10 minutes time. And ideally, they want a visual timetable. You know, playtime, great for non-autistic people, often very, very challenging if you are neurodivergent. And if you're someone who just wasn't born with the kind of social highway code, and I mean, you may have perfect autistic social skills, but what you don't have is neurotypical social skills. You're just watching everyone else, like casually making friendships, can be an intensely lonely experience. And so for that child who's anxious because it's noisy, it's chaotic, that is a very long hour. Lessons are getting a lot better, but often autistic people find it hard to take on lots of information verbally all at one time. And, you know, the world of work, if we progress from school, it's really difficult for autistic people to access because it's all predicated on social skills. So lots of autistic people just do not get through the interview process because they find, you know, they have to look at someone's eyeballs and all their attention is on that, trying to cope with that. Because for some people, looking at people's eyes is very difficult and anxiety provoking, but you know you have to do it Mm. so you don't appear odd. And then if somehow you get a job, the environment is way too chaotic and noisy for you. You know, you may just about manage it, but it's building on your anxiety throughout the day. And often the autistic people I spoke to describe just getting home and just not able to function at all when they get home. And they're seen as very high functioning because they are able to look like they're non-autistic. But actually what people don't see is the cost to them Mm. afterwards. You mentioned there, Jesse, an autistic social code and a non-autistic social code. What's the difference between those two? 
Well, if I can give you an example that I absolutely love, there was a conference where autistic people went to it and they had badges that said, I want to chat or another badge that said, I don't want to chat. And so they were giving clear instructions to other people saying, yes, I'm up for a conversation or no, I'm not. So non-autistic people, a lot of friendships is built on, I would describe it as verbal intimacy in a way. I think with non-autistic people sometimes, well, if I could be more specific, actually, with my son, he doesn't feel the need to chat in the same way. Mm. He just finds it overwhelming. Mm. It exhausts him, really. Conversations could be too unstructured for him. He doesn't always find sort of expressing his emotions in any way easy or even understanding what emotions he's feeling. So, and I think autistic people sometimes think that non-autistic people can be quite sort of imprecise, illogical, and also sometimes not honest. A bit convoluted in the way that we're engaging with stuff. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And also, um, I think there are all these white lies, mm. you know, and also how we we do often not say the truth. If you break it down, that is a very common feature of our day. And so I think for autistic people, that's really confusing. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as a non-autistic person, hearing that there is a kind of a different social code that other people have, it makes you re-examine your own, doesn't it? It makes you think, yeah, actually, I do say, oh, that's fine, don't worry, when actually I want to say, no, that's not fine at all. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I was, you know, making these friendships and relationships with the autistic community, I found myself really valuing the conversations and time I was spending with them. And I think this was quite significant for me because I think I did lose the fear of autism because if my son turned out to be like them, I'd be perfectly happy. You know, these were people that were funny, clever, and I admired. So I think we've done autistic people a disservice because how we've assessed people is we've taken a non-autistic yardstick and we've said, okay, you're not like a non-autistic person, therefore you're disordered. Empathy is a kind of stick that I feel like is routinely used to hit autistic people with. You know, studies have shown you lack empathy, therefore you're a robot. Autistic people have been dehumanised, really. Simon Baron-Cohen was the person who really did the research around empathy. And what he's shown is that there's two components to empathy. One is knowing intuitively what another person is going through. The second component is once you know, wanting to do something about it. Some autistic people will struggle with that first component, but the second component is totally intact. And I think it's really important to know that because like, if we look at psychopaths, it's flipped. They can intuitively guess what you're going through, but they don't care about Mm. it once they know. Mm. And so it's completely false to say autistic people lack empathy. And I think also empathy is far more complicated than we think. I think these are some of the examples how we've looked at things and made assumptions about autistic people that have led to them being mischaracterized and seen as scary, odd, other, Mm. less than human. We've spoken to Laura, who you know very well, who was diagnosed in her 40s, so a lot later than your son. Can you tell us a bit about Laura and why her story is so interesting? So Laura and I started speaking when I started writing the book. She helped me tremendously with my book, was like so generous with her time. Over the years, we developed into being good friends. And why it was really important to me was because she was really able to articulate for me what my son might be going through. So to this day, if he's having a bit of a tough time, I sometimes text her and say, 
what should I do? And she gives me really good advice. So like, I think he went through a phase of sort of screaming and she said, just write it down on a piece of paper saying, it's best not to scream because you'll hurt people's ears and then they won't want to be around you. Now, I wouldn't have said it like that because that seemed a little bit harsh to me, but she said that is useful information Mm. for him. And so speaking to Laura was part of the process about seeing something from a different point of view and also just highlighting the absurdity of some of the assumptions that I'd made. Hi, my name's Laura James. I'm a writer and author and I'm the mum of four and the very proud mum of a Springerdorf. I was diagnosed with a connective tissue disorder called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Alongside that, most people have something called POTS, which is postural orthostatic tachycardia. And I was in hospital having some tests for my POTS, and it was a really hot day, and the tests are quite arduous because they put you on this kind of tilt table, and they starve you, and then they overload you with carbs, and then they make you too hot, and then they make you too cold, and the whole thing is hideous. And they told me that at the end of the tests, I would be going back to my room and I would have a tuna sandwich and air conditioning. And when I got back to my room, there was no air conditioning. It was broken and there was no tuna sandwich. And I was really hungry. And I just had this epic meltdown. And the nurse sat down on the bed and kind of put her hand on my shoulder and said, I'm really sorry. Loads of the people who come through here for these tests are autistic and we should have realized and we should we should have done better. And so I'm going to get you a sandwich. I'm going to move your room. I'm going to get you air conditioning. Bloody blah, blah. And I kind of thought, well, I'm obviously not autistic, how ridiculous, but I am very hungry and very hot, so I'm just going to go along with this. So I just kind of nodded. I started to think I don't really know anything about autism, so I kind of Googled it and researched it, and it didn't really resonate that much with me until I started Googling autistic women, and it was just like a light bulb moment where I just realised that everything I read was just totally me. I think it's very easy to think that autistic people can't do things like communicate either in the written or spoken word as effectively as non-autistic people and I absolutely disagree with that wholeheartedly. I think some of the best communicators are autistic people. I have this talk that I sometimes give to clinicians or the NHS or whatever. I talk about how we often talk about the deficits in autism and one of the DSM criteria were deficits in using communication for social purposes. And what that essentially means is that autistic people can't endlessly bang on about the weather or speculate forever about whether Julie fancies Jason in accounts or whatever. I really, really, really hated school. I found my children's schooling really traumatic as well. You take 30 individuals and try and make them all do the same thing at the same time in the same way and then get angry with the ones that can't do it. That was my experience of school. I was talking to a mum the other day who was saying that her son was particularly interested in the colour blue and the number four. So they tried to incorporate blue and four into his lessons and therefore he was able to engage more. You know, I remember the only time I was really very happy at school was when we did what was called topics, which were like projects where you got to choose your own thing. And my mum died recently and I was cleaning out her house and I found my project on dog breeds. (laughs) I just thought it's really interesting that... You know, I was probably five or six when I did it, and being allowed to do that at school was really joyful for me. I left school with no qualifications at all, so I didn't even get a GCSE. I basically am uneducated, totally, because I didn't manage to learn anything at school at all. 
in another world, a world that was more set up for me, I undoubtedly would have got a really good degree. I probably would have gone on to do more after that. I don't have to mask at all because I came out in a big newspaper piece and then got invited onto every single breakfast TV sofa on earth. But my late teens and my early 20s, I masked all the time and it was absolutely exhausting. I think a good way of looking at it is imagine you had to go to work every day and you had to pretend to be French while you were at work. And then when you went out after work with your friends, you had to then pretend to be a different nationality. And then when you got home, you had to pretend your partner that you were another nationality and then the only time you could ever be yourself was while you were alone in the bath it's that hard one of the reasons I wrote my book and one of the reasons I came out so publicly was because I realized that no autistic woman had written about her experiences for a mainstream UK book publisher at that point and that just seemed extraordinary. There were loads of books by parents, by men, even boys, but, but nothing by women. And that just seemed profoundly wrong to me. There are many benefits to being autistic. I think autistic people tend to think differently. And I think that we need people who think differently to move forward. If everybody thought the same way, then we're going to be stuck in the same place. You know, if you do what you've always done, you get what you've always got. Reporting like this, which challenges stereotypes and forces us to think differently about the world, is important. If you'd like to support our journalism, there's a brilliant deal on right now. We have an offer for 50% off a digital subscription and a physical copy of our weekend newspaper. Enjoy 12 months for $59.99 or try three for $19.99. Head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast to get this offer now. I think it'd be fair to say that we are hearing a lot more about autism over the past few years than we maybe did before and that there's probably a greater awareness of autism by non-autistic people. How has the science and the sort of social understanding of autism changed over time? I think it's changed significantly. If we look at the social understanding, I mean, you know, in our office, we've got neurodivergent people Mm -hmm. who are very open about that. And it's just not a thing. Yeah. And I find that so kind of like it just gives me such hope, really. I think also the research, in my view, is moving in the right direction. So previously, it used Mm -hmm. to be very focused on social skills training and interventions. In some cases, I think we're just about allowing someone to appear non-autistic. A lot of autistic adults have deep concerns about this because there is some research to show that the level of masking, i.e. pretending that you're not autistic, will be a, a factor really in your likelihood to, to commit suicide. Oh God. If you have a child and you're teaching them that who they are is not acceptable, really you're just teaching them to be ashamed of who they really are. So I like to think the interventions are moving in the direction of allowing people to be autistic, not training them up to be a good neurotypical, and yet giving them information that they need to live in a neurotypical world. I've heard something about people of colour with autism, Jesse, kind of experiencing almost a double discrimination. What have you learned about that? Well, when I looked at it for my book, I was trying to find the research around if you're black, really, and how that changes your diagnosis process or how that impacts 
your experience of getting support. And what I found is that there was very little research that mm. I could draw on. And I started speaking to some charities in this area and they were of the opinion that if you're black in a school, you're less likely to get diagnosed because perhaps if you're child doesn't make eye contact they're more likely to be seen as defiant or mm. sullen or not engaging the teacher so so their behavior is more likely to be ascribed as naughtiness rather than potentially as them being autistic and other cultures it's very tricky because you know there are some countries that still don't have a word for autism for example so it's not acknowledged that their children are autistic they're just seen as naughty or bad or weird. So I think there's huge amount of work that could be done to be helping children who aren't white, because at the moment, what it looks like is that if we're going to generalise, white children get diagnosed quicker and get more support at school. You know, as we talked about, there's definitely moves towards the neurotypical population adjusting to autistic people rather than the other way around. But there are still lots of myths, aren't there, about autism and autistic people. Are there any particular ones that you've come into contact with which you'd really like to kind of debunk? Yeah, I think the main one for me is seeing autistic people as being unemotional. And that is so common still. That's just what people assume. And it is so untrue. So I think if you're neurodivergent, there's a condition called alexithymia. Sorry, I might have pronounced that wrong. But essentially it means you don't understand the emotions you're experiencing. You can't articulate it because you don't even know. And so a lot of the autistic adults I spoke to said that when they were stressed, they only realised when they had a pounding headache because it was the physical symptoms mm. that alerted them rather than them being able to recognise it. So it allowed to get to such a state that they had this absolutely dreadful headache before mm. that they could respond and do something about it. So there is something about being autistic and not innately knowing your emotional state. Nowadays, children like my son are being taught to recognize their own emotions, but it's not intuitive. So it's not that you can't learn it, but it just doesn't come to you at birth. Mm. And so I think if you can't recognize your own emotional state, how are you going to sort of recognize other people's? And so with older autistic people, I think that's why people assume they are emotionless. Mm. So I find that really harmful because, you know, I see my son and how how incredibly anxious he is to please people and to do the right thing and to not upset people. Jesse, you're a business journalist and I think some people might think that those two areas are quite distinct, but actually there has been some work on the crossover between those two things and how autism impacts kind of the financial world and people's money management and things like that. What are the crossovers in those two areas that, that you've seen? Well, the crossover I am looking at at the moment is how autistic people are not served very well by banks. Mm. There is now quite clear research that autistic people, people with ADHD, developmental coordination disorder, all these people are more likely to be in debt. And, you know, at the eye, we've been commissioning people to write pieces about their difficulty being autistic or having ADHD and trying to cope with your finances. So, for example, we had an autistic freelancer write that, on the whole, he doesn't want to speak to people if he can avoid it. 
he finds it scary, it makes him anxious, they might ask him anything, and he just finds that very difficult to cope with. So he tries to use Banks' chat service as much as possible, Mm. but he says the way it's currently set up, you can only get so far. So there are still things where he's forced to speak to someone, and that means he puts it off or doesn't do it. So that negatively affects his finances. Very commonly, I'm told that it's all overwhelming. You know, if I can give you an example, I was asking an autistic person to read a chapter of my book and I sent him three attachments. One was the chapter and the other two was something else I I can't remember. And he replied and said, I just saw those three attachments and panicked and couldn't open your email. I think that's quite common. There's something called executive function, which is how your brain can sequence and order tasks. And I think there's, you know, sort of research looking into how people who are autistic and who have ADHD, how they struggle with these executive function tasks. So what banking is doing is sending people complicated letters that are the equivalent of those three attachments that people just just can't deal with. I would like to see banks working with neurodivergent people to see what other practical steps we can do to help people manage their finances better. And, you know, there's also massive problems with doctors' surgeries as well. You know, autistic people sometimes say it's just so difficult trying to articulate what you're feeling Mm. to the GP in a short space of time. And these things are your core components of your life, aren't they? You know, if you're not able to easily access healthcare, if you're excluded from financial products and the workplace, you know, what chance do you have really? So I feel these things need to be rethought. You can find Jessie's book, Autism, How to Raise a Happy Autistic Child, online and in all good bookshops. If you'd like to read the work of autistic writers sharing their experiences navigating the financial world, visit inews.co.uk, where we'll also update you with breaking news, in-depth features and political analysis every single day. We'd love to hear any feedback. So do drop us a line at podcasts at inews.co.uk. I'm Molly Blackall. You can find me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at molly.blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.